Hey there, first of all, quick thanks to this week's guest for his patience and understanding. Anyone who downloaded Sharon Eastern's episode early in the day, two Fridays ago, would have heard this episode teased at the end, but then later that day we recorded a session with Kyle Ann Duggan, who dropped some big news. So we decided to bump her up, which in turn bumped this week's episode back a week, even though we had planned to release it that day to coincide with his CD release party. When we told him, his response was simply, we must always celebrate love, which we of course concur with. And also great thanks to the folks at Northumberland 89.7 in Coburg, Ontario, which I erroneously refer to at the end of this episode as Northumbria, wrong continent, for facilitating the taping of this show. Anyway, now that that's out of the way, here is the show. One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that illuminates our guests' personalities and personal histories using songs that have become bound to their memories and the stories they contain. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is David Newland. David's a writer, musician, speaker, and adventurer who these days lives in Coburg, Ontario. That's about an hour east of Toronto, right on Lake Ontario. He was born in Ottawa and raised on the shores of Georgian Bay near Perry Sound. He was awarded a scholarship to Lester B. Pearson United World College at 17 and then went on to study literature at McGill University and graduated with distinction from Concordia University's fine arts program, majoring in photography. Since then, he's forged a unique career in the arts and media, combining writing, music, photography, public speaking, and web production. And don't forget adventuring. He spends his summers traveling with Adventure Canada as a Zodiac driver. That's a small boat for the uninitiated, which I was until this morning. He crisscrosses Canada as a performer and speaker throughout the year. In 2015, he was named a Fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, a distinction that reflects a lifelong engagement with landscape and story. His musical presentation, Northbound, the Northwest Passage in Story and Song, has been selling out venues across Canada since 2016. His newest album, Northbound, which is based on his Arctic adventures, just came out. And David's our first harvest from our new effort to challenge our guests to name three people they know who they think should be guests. So this is pretty exciting for us. So let's do this. Hey there, David Newland. How's it going? It's going great. Going great. Great to be on your show. So what does musk ox taste like? Is it musky? You know, I found that musk ox tastes like a cross between a beef and goat, and it's pretty good. And, and is there actually such a thing as musk ox stew, and do you eat it often? There sure is a thing called musk ox stew, and no, I haven't eaten it often. I've had it a couple of times in communities in the Canadian high Arctic, and you can also get it in the cafeteria of the airport in Kangerlussuaq, Greenland, on a good day. Okay. And just to explain for our uninitiated listeners, this is the name of one of your songs from your newest album, which I saw the video of. Can you just explain a little bit about what's going on in that video and all the elements that you have involved in that song? Yes. What's happening in that video is that I'm on stage with with my band, uh, Uncharted Waters. We're a five-piece and um, multi-instrumental group, lots of kind of um, Celtic and Canadian folk sounds. And we're joined by a guest fiddler by the name of Alex Chung and a jaw harp player by the name of Lois Suluk, who's also an actor. And we have uh, my friends Linda Brown and Heidi Langell, who are in a um, Inuit throat singing a duo called Sikinip Kilauta, 
who are kind of creating these uh, Inuit traditional sounds that interweave with the song that we're singing. It's a live recording on stage from the new live album. And what we're singing about is an experience that I've had uh, many times on my trips to the Arctic with Adventure Canada, where you wind up in a community in a tiny hamlet, you know, a place of maybe just a couple hundred people and visitors from the ship who have, who have paid to, to go on a trip there from the south are being welcomed in by the community. And one of the elements of that is the sharing of country food, which is, which is food that's harvested from the land or from the water, usually on that day, and then shared among everybody. And I've eaten a lot of interesting things that people in the south aren't used to, including raw seal liver and things like that. But muskox stew was what was being served up that day. And I, I was just so compelled by the whole thing, I wound up writing a song in honor of that. Hmm. I love how you t- refer to the South to what we refer to as the North. It's nice uh, for, you know, global context. Um, uh, flash out just a little bit the Adventure Canada. I, I mentioned that you 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 drive the, the boat, the Zodiac. Is that what it was called? Did I get that right? Yes, That's the right, Zodiac. Yeah. Um, uh, but you also play on board. Uh, just kind of flesh out what, 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 what roles you're playing uh, during your Adventure Canada adventures. Yeah, so Adventure Canada is this company that it's a family-run travel company that sells experiences primarily aboard expedition-style cruise ships. So small ships that are navigating from point to point in places like the Canadian Arctic and the Northwest Passage. And most of the places that we go... You can't actually dock a ship, which means if you want to do anything off the ship, which we do, you have to get into a Zodiac. And so we travel with these fleets of Zodiacs, 18-foot rigid inflatable rubber boats, what you've seen from kind of Jacques Cousteau documentaries or that sort of thing. We take 10 people at a time and, and we go out often as a fleet and we're either visiting into communities or we're doing uh, hikes and walkabouts on the land. Or we're doing Zodiac cruises and maybe a remote fjord looking for whales or bears, um, that sort of thing. And that's that's kind of what I do during the day when I'm on the ship. And then I'm also the expedition host uh, when we gather daily to talk about the activities that we've undertaken. And then I play guitar and sing and I write songs about that. And I also work for Adventure Canada through the year as, as kind of a brand ambassador, writer, event planner, you know. The things you do as an artist to to keep your oar in. Exactly. No, that sounds really idyllic to me, I tell you what. Uh, so what was the musical background of your childhood now that you're living a life that's so imbued with it? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I'm actually super grateful. I didn't grow up in a folk tradition very much the way that some of my friends from the East Coast, for example, did or some of my Indigenous friends did. I did grow up in a community where there was singing in the church every Sunday, where there was singing whenever kids were gathered and that sort of thing. Um, my biggest influence, though, I would say was AM radio. I mean, I'm not ashamed to admit it. AM radio in the 70s was such a melting, po- melting pot, um, especially, I think, in, in rural Canada where you know, you'd have one station for an area that might be 60, 80, 100 miles. And so they kind of had to play everything. And uh, and as a result of that, I grew up with a lot of influences, some of which were really core to the experiences that I was having. For example, I come from about 60, 65 miles from where Gordon Lightfoot comes from. 
So the landscapes that he sang about and the images in his songs were precise to my own hmm. experience. Hmm. And, and, and that was also true to a lesser extent, but, but still significantly with people like Joni Mitchell, people like Neil Young. They were singing songs that were particular to Canadian landscapes and Canadian experiences, and they were on the air. So you could hear them and you could absorb them, and that, that's a big, important part of my childhood. They're also intermingled with classic country coming, coming from the States. They're intermingled with uh, some of the folk stuff that made it onto the radio, you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Harry, Harry Belafonte, um, you know, and then the, the great songwriters of the 70s and Carole King and John Denver and, and all of that. All that is, those are huge influences in me. Hmm. Uh, uh, do you remember the first music that you owned yourself? <laughs> yeah, I do. There, I mean, I remember the first record that I got given, which was an Irish Rovers record that my grandmother gave me. I don't know whether they ever made it big outside of Canada, but they were a big band for us. And they had a hit with a Shel Silverstein song called The Unicorn. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I think when I was about five, my grandma gave me an Irish Rovers record, which I played to death. And the first record I ever bought myself was a collection of four trucking songs. Uh, it was one of those KTEL collections. KTEL's, not, it's a Canadian company that's, <laughs> that's had a lot of influence on a lot of us. And yeah, yeah. They had a, so KTEL had this collection of trucker songs and I bought it. It was a four-song collection, but I bought it specifically for the song Convoy by C.W. McCall. What was it about that song that called to you as a child? You know, I, I think it's that as a kid, I, was, I, I lived uh, down along the end of a, of a dirt road that was about a half mile long, and my sister and I had to walk up to the highway to catch the bus to go to our rural school. And those trucks going by on the highway, they were a big part of our experience. And uh, that was the era of the CB radio and that sort of thing. It was the time when you could sort of make the honking motion and a, and a truck just very likely would sound its air horn. Hmm. So truck culture was kind of brushing by us every day. I had um, walkie-talkies that would pick up truckers going by. And I think when that song came out, I mean, it's just such a great story. It's absolutely dense with scenes and ideas and kind of identity in a way. Like to this day, I still think about, there's a line in there about uh, 11 long-haired friends of Jesus in a chartreuse microbus. And it's sort of my, it's the first time I, I, I think about kind of relating to the hippies in this story. And uh, so I get a kick out of that. I wait for that when that song comes on, even to this day. Hmm. You ever play that song yourself? I have never played that song myself, though I can quote from it extensively. <laughs> Clearly. Um, okay, well, it is time for your first song, David. What are you going to uh, listen to or what are we going to play? And, and do you want to tell the story or do you want to play the song or how do you want to set it up? Yeah, so let's let's tell the story. And I think we're going to start with this, uh, with the song I'm Your Man by Leonard Cohen, mm -hmm. which is off the album... I believe it's off the album of the same name, circa maybe 19, late 80s at some point, I think. And um, the reason that I'm picking this song is because it goes with a real life lesson for me. So I had been in India in 1989 for about three months, backpacking around, uh, riding on trains and buses and staying in third-rate 
hostels uh, suffering from all the gastro uh, ailments that you can imagine and really having my mind blown by this incredible ancient and super dynamic culture. And I was, by the time I got out of India, I was about 30 pounds underweight. I didn't own any North American clothes because I had sold them and was traveling around wearing light cotton pajama style clothing and sandals. And, um, I wound up coming back to Canada through Europe. So I, f- I flew from Delhi to Poland, spent an overnight in Warsaw, flew down to Zurich, and then took a train to Italy. And I was staying with some friends in Italy, and I realized I was almost out of money and I still had to get back to Canada. I had about 500 bucks, and I knew it was about 400 bucks to fly, to get a ticket and fly from... Cardiff, Wales, where I was heading to Toronto, and I really wanted to save as much money as I could. So I elected not to get on a train to get to Cardiff, and instead I would hitchhike. And I had a lot of experience hitchhiking in Canada and quite a bit of experience hitchhiking in Britain and Ireland. And so I asked my friends who happened to be uh, from Cardiff how long it had taken them to get to Italy. And they said it was an 18 hour drive. And I said, okay, great. That's similar to how long it takes to get from say Vancouver to Edmonton. And usually when I'm hitchhiking, I just double the time. So that's going to be a 36 hour hitchhike. And I set off on the road somewhere near Florence to start hitchhiking. Um, Keep in mind, I'm like 35 pounds underweight. And I have, uh, I'm scruffy. And how old, how old long... are you, how old are you at this time? And, and, and what are you wearing? I want to see it. <laughs> yeah. So I've just turned 20. Okay. And, uh, and I'm super scruffy looking. And what I'm wearing is, uh, what's called a kurta pajama. It's, it's like light Indian cotton clothing with sort of like a rope belt and loose flowing. And I, and I've got this raggedy backpack and I, I, I probably, I'm not really thinking about how I look. (laughs) But it's a beautiful sunny day and my friends drop me off. They're staying on in this place for a while. And I wave them off and off I go. And I don't have my thumb out for more than 15 minutes when this beautiful red sports car pulls over. And, uh, you know, the door opens and I hop in. And looking back at me is a beautiful Italian woman with gorgeous hair, smile, eyes, the whole bit, very welcoming. And I'm sort of like a little bit shocked already because it's not my experience that you get picked up by a lot of solo women uh, in when you're hitchhiking in North America. And then it's this gorgeous car and this big smile, and, and, and Leonard Cohen is playing on the stereo, okay? And I'm just thinking like, wow, this is a dream come true. This bodes really well for my hoped for 36 hour hitchhiking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then what happens is it it starts to go even better from there and we're chatting and she's quite fluent in English and wants to know about Canada and we're getting along and and um and I think the next stop along the trail was Milan and she said I'm going to Milan and I've got to go to my place and feed my dogs. And um and so okay 
great. We go to her place, and these dogs, beautiful big German shepherds, this gorgeous apartment, like plants, spices, a lovely kitchen. The light is gorgeous. And it's just like the dogs love me. Everything is so sensational. And she says to me, now, I actually, I can take you out to the highway right now if you want to get going. But I have some running around town to do. And if you like, you can just rest easy here. The dogs are obviously comfortable with you. And later, I can take you even further down the road. Now, what do I say, guys? (laughs) Maybe... For a little bit of context, I have to tell you that when you're a rural Canadian of my age, you were raised to politely say no to things. (laughs) I couldn't possibly, I wouldn't want to put you out. These are all expressions that we're taught and that we hear people say. And so I say to her, no, I couldn't possibly, I wouldn't want to put you out. And she says, really? Because by the time you get out there and wait and everything else like that, You know, it might be just as, and obviously, as I look back on it now, this is not an invitation that is very frequently extended. Yeah, right. And that probably this attention represents something, but I'm not even thinking of that at all. And um, and so what did I do? But I I dutifully went out to the highway and said, no, gosh, I, I better just keep going. Thank you very much. You know, this has been so great. Thanked her profusely, got dropped off on the highway and proceeded to take... 100 hours, four <laughs> days to hitchhike to Cardiff with almost not a bite to eat, like going delirious with lack of sleep, uh, sitting on my backpack by the side of the road in the middle of France. Like it just went terribly downhill, the worst, most brutal hitchhiking trip of my life. And um, I've never forgotten it. I've never forgotten that. Because it's really a lesson in what happens when you refuse, for whatever obscure reason, genuinely offered hospitality. Hmm. Politeness will get you nowhere sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I really think it's a life lesson, you know, that, 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 um, that, that, a, that a kind of generosity of the universe was just presenting itself in, uh, in this very innocent way. And that my notion of what was the right thing to do um, obscured that. And uh, the, the one thing I gained from it was a lesson that I never forgot. Yeah, and she probably never forgot you too, that skinny, scruffy, weird-dressed guy that said no thanks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, gosh, she was probably, she probably wondered what she'd done wrong. You know, it, was, it had to be a little bit strange for her. I, I, I it, it, who knows, right? I'll never know that part of the story. Absolutely. But I figured that choosing, uh, I figured, I, I don't actually remember which particular Leonard Cohen song was playing when I got into the car, but I figured I'm Your Man is probably a, a good ironic choice. All right. Well, let's listen to it together. This is I'm Your Man by Leonard Cohen from his 1988 album of the same name. I'm Your Man. You know, I don't really do Twitter, but as I was digging around on your website before this show, I wound up on your Twitter page, and your most recent tweet says, quote, me at 20, obsessed with finding myself, me at 50, obsessed with losing myself. Care to connect that to you wandering around India when you were 20? Yeah, that's very that's very astute. I'm, I'm glad you picked that up. You know, 
Although I was born in 1969, I think I really imbibed a lot of the ideas that led the kind of baby boom generation on their wanderings. I grew up on their music and on their writings, and um, as soon as I could, you know, I mean, I talked before about about noticing the hippies in the in the C.W. McCall song, right? Um, I remember noticing the hippies along the roadsides uh, of my small town, you know, during those heady days of the of the late seventies, and they were hitchhiking around Canada with long hair and backpacks, and just thinking, "Wow, like that's that's the way to go." And I did. I I pursued this notion that was out there. It loosely went under the phrase finding yourself and I thought it was important and I thought it was motivating and I thought it was powerful and it was also impossible and frustrating you never did find yourself um and everywhere you went you know it felt like you're just discovering more and more stuff that's just complicating that and then in time I recognized that what I was doing was accruing materials and that I would be thinking on these experiences for the rest of my life. And at a certain point, I actually stopped traveling so widely and, and so, you know, sort of manically in a way, because I realized I was still processing the stuff that I had experienced in India or Costa Rica or any, any other of the number of places I went. And at some point along the way, I recognized that the great irony was that if you did find yourself, you'd landed up in the wrong place. I mean, if anything, if there is a, a path to enlightenment or to a, to a higher mind or state of being, it's about getting rid of or, or at least subverting or getting around the ego and, and these false identities that, that we sort of make up and get caught up in. Hmm. You know, that uh, that's the second time on this series. We've done 63 episodes, I think, now, and it's the second time we've had a song show up a second time. Um, and the first time, it was a uh, an Iranian-Colombian artist named Layla Misdagi, who lives here in southwest Florida. And her her story was about finding herself and losing herself, too, so it's kind of interesting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, where does music fit into your life these days when you're not making it? That's a really good question because I've been recognizing of late that I no longer listen to music the way that I once did. When I was younger and wasn't a very good guitar player and wasn't much of a songwriter and, and just wasn't out there that much, I was a voracious consumer of music. I mean, I would hear a song on the radio and I would be struck by it and I'd have to go to the record store and buy a copy of it. I, you know, I used to keep a tape in the tape deck for when a certain song came on. There were songs you only heard once in a blue moon, and you were trying to capture that song, you know. Um, and I was constantly having my mind blown by music. Uh, I never walked into a room without putting a tape player on or later a CD player. Uh, you know, I was a voracious consumer of live music, jammed a lot. And over time, I mean... I've got a day job and a night job, and they're they're pretty intermingled because, as we talked about before, the adventures that I do with Adventure Canada wind up in my music. 
but I don't listen to music the same way that I once did, that's for sure. Hmm. Um, you got a, a degree in photography back in the day. Uh, do, do, you, mm-hmm. do, you do, do you have a camera besides your phone these days? You know, for the first time in years, uh, I strapped on a proper camera. Just a few weeks ago, I, I went with Adventure Canada to Costa Rica and Panama. I hadn't been back to Costa Rica since I, I had been there in there. 91, 92, and uh, I went back and, uh, w- you know, was working uh, with a tour down there and um, was fortunate to, uh, Nikon basically lent lent me a camera to use, and I got to photograph things as I went, especially wildlife, which was just amazing. And, uh, and it was really nice, and it was a really comfortable feeling to be engaging with that again and picking it up and go okay this little button here does that and this is here's how you do that and feeling the instinct you know you know you get to know a camera something like you get to know a guitar and the weight of it and the way it plays and feels and and that was really exciting and fun but I generally don't work directly as a photographer anymore that was a bit of a fluke Um, it's a it's a tool that I know how to use and that I enjoy but I do it on my phone more than anything. That said, visual awareness and the ability to understand photographs and how they're made and how they speak is a really important part of what I do because both in my musical shows and in my speaking engagements, I use amazing photography, much of it by other photographers, um, from the places that I visit and go. And knowing how to put those images together to, to enhance a story or a song is really important. And I also feel that photography is deep in my musical practice, that Hmm. the ability to make images um, is, you know, that that applies in music as well. That's really important in music. Hmm. You know, and if in my opinion, you know, if you if you can see pictures out there, if you can if if you can see the world through that lens, it doesn't matter if it's a five thousand dollar Nikon or your iPhone or whatever, your Android phone, you can still make those images happen. I think that's right. And I, I have never really totally left photographer, photography behind because I've always photographed on little pocket digital cameras oh, okay, and yeah. my iPhone and stuff like, you know, I, I mean, shooting now, I shoot from time to time and I put it on Instagram. I don't do it with very much intent, but I think of it as a bit of a sketchbook. And it just it keeps your hand in the game a little bit, I think. Yeah. Um, you, do you do any karaoke in your life? I've done karaoke approximately three times. I'm, I, approximately, I, maybe two, I, maybe four. <laughs> yeah, well, to be honest, sometimes when you wind up doing karaoke, it's a little late in the game. Yeah, to Rod, Roger that accurately. <laughs> so, what would be a go-to? I admire karaoke? it. You admire so so you don't mind watching it. It's a spectator sport for you. You know. I don't do it on, I mean, I don't, I don't purposely go out to karaoke night, but because I travel a lot and I'm often in a pub or a hotel bar somewhere, I encounter it relatively frequently. And what I really respect about it is that people are drawn there because they have such a deep and urgent need to sing. And I'm glad that that art form, if you want to call it that, exists to allow them to express themselves in that way. That's how I see it. Um... I, I could regret that there aren't more organic musical opportunities for, for people to make good on that need, but at least they're doing that. And I've had some 
really fun times, hilarious times, um, you know, in, in kind of karaoke settings. And you can learn something from anyone who's making music, uh, even if it's a total novice doing their best to just sing in key to an Elton John song or something. There's lots, there's lots you can pick up there. Yeah, I, I, I would tend to agree with that. Um, okay, so it's time for song number two. What, uh, what are we going to hear? Well, for this one, let's do another, let's do another story that uh, stems from my career as a hitchhiker. And, um, okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe this time we'll start with the song and then go with the story. Hey, no, that sounds good to me. Is that this this unbreakable change? Just so I have this right. No, I want to do uh, I want to do "Fly at Night" by the uh, by the Canadian classic rock band Chilliwack. Okay, okay. Well, then let's hear it. Uh, we'll cue it up. Uh, this is uh, uh, "Fly at Night," Chilliwack, Chilliwack. Is that how you say it? Chilliwack. You don't have to say Chili. Chil- Chilliwack. Sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah, Chilliwack from their 1977 album "Dreams, Dreams, Dreams." All right, that was the first time I ever heard a Chilliwack song. I like it. Uh, kind of Neil Young does moody blues. <laughs> you know, that's a pretty good description. Yeah, that that's a really good description. I would say there's a bit of Rush in there as well. That's what Richard you know, that's what I said. Yeah, Richard was like, I hear Rush in the guitar work. <laughs> yeah, sure. And also that high voice, right? I mean, Rush yeah. set the standard for the, for the kind of Canadian prog slash classic rock sound but you know there there were a lot of bands that that uh that played in that genre and Chilliwack were really good they had a bunch of radio hits in Canada and I would argue that had they been from the states or or the UK they might have been a lot bigger than that yeah i i think that sounds right to me so what's the story well so the story is that every canadian of my age grew up knowing two things about Chilliwack they were this band that you kept hearing on the radio um and then that it was the town in BC that they came from, British Columbia, one of our provinces, uh, the, the province on the west coast of Canada. And I knew nothing more than that and probably wouldn't have even ever thought about it too much. But um, but my most legendary hitchhiking trip of all wound up taking me to Chilliwack one time. And uh, and so when whenever I hear whenever I hear that song or anything about that band... It reminds me of walking along the roadside in Chilliwack in the rain in February in a, at about 4 a.m. in the morning. And there's that, there's that great line in the song, to see the morning from the other side, which sounds so evocative and amazing, you know, like that's, the, that's like the romance of the rock and roll lifestyle or whatever. And this was the exact opposite of romantic. Hmm. When was that? So that was in, in 1988. You want to hear the story that goes with it? Well, yeah, that's why we're here, David Newland. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so here's what – I'll try to give you the, 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 the truncated version. Roger. Uh, this involves my th- – this is myself and, and, uh, and a good buddy of mine, Phil. And we're buddies and we're going to the school that you mentioned in my intro, Pearson College, this international school in Victoria, British Columbia. And it's the winter of 1988. And we're supposed to be doing a project. There's like, we had like a reading week, but they called it project week. And you were supposed to do a project and then go do the project and then come back and write it up. Okay. So we had made this plan. Our project was going to be, we were going to go work at this lighthouse on the West coast of Vancouver Island. And 
Somehow, with like three days to go, we found out that the lighthouse was so fogged in that they didn't want us to come up there. They didn't even, couldn't even figure out if they were going to be able to accept us. And so we were suddenly without a project. And I mean, it, we didn't exactly have a, a plan B. So Phil and I get together. Our rooms were next to one another in this residence. And we decide, well, let's look at a map. So I had this big, um, big like motor league map of Canada with with a huge page for each province, okay? And uh, and BC is a massive, massive province. So we we turn to the BC page and you're looking at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands of square miles of landscape. Um, And we're looking and we're thinking, okay, that's where the that's where we are. That's where the lighthouse was. That's where Vancouver is. Oh, what can we do? But it just happened that because of the shape of the province, um, its eastern border runs from the southeast to the northwest. And so to fit it on a square page, a big chunk of the neighboring province of Alberta also gets on that page, okay? Mm-hmm. Including the capital city of Alberta, Edmonton, where I happen to have an uncle. And my uncle happens to have a collection of 10,000-plus vinyl records and another several thousand CDs. So with three days to go, I just blurt out, like, hey, Phil, why don't we go to Edmonton? And he says, how are we going to get to Edmonton? And I say, hitchhike, of course. (laughs) Um, Now, you need to know that Victoria, British Columbia... The, the, the temperature very rarely goes below freezing. They almost never get snow, and, and what they do get, they don't get very much. And so we were in these balmy temperatures and did not have the kind of clothes that most Canadians keep around for wintertime. So we wound up setting off on this journey. We hitchhiked from Victoria to Edmonton, through the Rocky Mountains, and back in February. I can't even, it, it took almost an hour to tell this story at Phil's stag party. So I really, <laughs> I really am going to give you the, the truncated version. But here's a couple of highlights, okay? Um, we, we, managed to, uh, we managed to get a pretty good ride out of Vancouver, and then we make another like classic hitchhiking error, which is we, we take the wrong road and we wind up uh, basically freezing in the semi-desert outside of Kamloops. It's desert, but it's extremely cold, and the sun is going down, and we're in trouble. And we finally managed to get this ride. And uh, like I said, we don't have any winter clothes or anything like that. So we're, we're somehow we're walking through the town of Kamloops, this big sprawling town in the interior of BC, and a truck pulls over, that a big transport truck, and a guy goes, "Where are you guys going?" And it's like two a.m. and we're freezing and hopeless and scared. And we say, where are you going? Hmm. And he says, Calgary. Now, we're going to Edmonton, which is four hours away from Calgary, but we don't care. Right, <laughs> All yeah. we want is a ride. You need a rescue. So we say, yeah, that's where we're going to go, too. So, we, so we, get in, we get in the truck with the guy. His name is Bernie. He's super friendly. So friendly, he instantly offers us a beer and says, can you get us? Can he get me one as well? And so he's driving along with a case of beer under the under the air ride seat that I'm sitting on. Uh, a little while later, he pulls out a joint, and we're terrified, and but we also are more afraid of getting out of the truck. 
Uh, now we're heading up into the Rockies, and it's the middle of the night, and it's snowing, and we come into um, an avalanche zone. And when I say we come into an avalanche zone, I mean there's just been an avalanche, <laughs> and there are there are there are graders and uh, front end loaders, and they're clearing the road. And there's a little booth, a little booth the size of a an outhouse. It's a little wooden booth with a stop sign outside of it, and that's where you're supposed to stop because they're clearing the road. And Bernie, at this point, who's been into the beer and the weed, turns to us and goes, "Let's smoke them," and. <laughs> And blows through the stop sign and hauls on his horn. And like the one thing I know about avalanches is that <laughs> they can be brought on. But, but so now we're like flying through this avalanche zone with this mad trucker hauling on his horn. And somehow, impossibly, he makes his way around the equipment and we keep going. And uh, he says, uh, he says, you know, you guys should drive this rig. And we're like, we're we're not driving. Your rig, and uh, we're in the Rocky Mountains. It's the middle of the night. It's an avalanche zone, like all these reasons, right? And he says it's not that hard. He says my eight-year-old daughter does it all the time. <laughs> I, I put her on my lap, and uh, and she steers through here, and we're just like that is not happening. So we kind of make this silent pact that one of us will get some sleep, and one will stay up with Bernie because we don't know what he's going to do. And and so this long night passes. And the next morning, we're, we're coming out of the Rockies and down the foothills into Calgary. And, uh, and Bernie's driving, and uh, my buddy Phil is sitting on the hump between the two seats up front, that big hump inside of a rig. And I'm sitting in the other seat, and the sun is rising and whatever. And Bernie gets out of his seat. He just gets up and gets out. And so Phil naturally grabs the wheel because we're on the Trans-Canada Highway in a transport truck and in the process of grabbing the wheel kind of has to slip down into Bernie's seat. And then Bernie's sitting up on the hump with this huge grin on his face. And then Phil realizes, oh, I've been had. Like, I now I am driving this. Yeah, well, yeah. then he gets this huge grin on his face. And so because and so, he's driving a semi along the Trans-Canada Highway. And then, of course, since Phil's done it, I have to do it too. So we, we swap out and I drive the thing. And, um, and, I mean, we were really, we were pretty excited about that, actually. It was insane, but it was, it was pretty cool. And, um, and then, so then, then Bernie gets behind the wheel and we come in and uh, we're coming into the outskirts of Calgary. We can sort of see the town kind of on the prairie in the distance. We're coming out of the foothills. And then we come to a stop and there's like t- sort of hydro poles, uh, you know, electric electric service and a, and a stoplight and stuff at the foot of this big hill. But it looks new. Like it looks like it's been recently erected. The, the poles are, you know, fresh wood kind of thing. And then we look over and there's this huge crowd up on the hillside and we're stopped at this stoplight. And then we look and we realize like it's not just a huge crowd. It's a huge crowd watching a ski jump and then we realize it's not just a huge crowd watching a ski jump we are watching the ski jump of the 1988 olympics <laughs> with the winter olympics which are held in calgary and so for the two minutes that we were at that stoplight we this is the year of eddie the eagle and all that you know yeah yeah so we actually we were that was the one time i've been to the olympics so th- that's like one of the little adventures that happened along the way we wind up uh 
we wind up going to this truck wash and helping Bernie wash his truck, and then he says, "Well, I'll take I'll take you up to the up to the um, the highway up to Edmonton, and you can you can go. It's the long way around, but we're still going to Edmonton." And so, but he says uh, he says, "But couldn't you stay with me?" And uh, he says, "I'm I'm going to Winnipeg, you know, which is two more provinces over across the prairie." And we're like, "No, but Bernie, we're." We're not going to Winnipeg. Like we have a limited time here. Yeah, we we're on a deadline. <laughs> right? And and Bernie says, I'll never forget this. He says, What? With the three of us driving, we could be back here in two days. <laughs> <laughs> he had you on the team at that point. <laughs> That's it. We were back on. So then we went up to Edmonton. We managed to get there that afternoon and we spent several days in Edmonton and pretty much the whole thing we did in Edmonton was plunder my uncle's album collection and we we went to the we went to the Radio Shack and we bought boxes of Maxell 90s and uh and we recorded tape after tape after tape of all these albums and uh and made mixtapes for all our friends and whatever and just just absolutely bathed in that record collection. And then we hitchhiked, hitchhiked out from Edmonton, and we went to Jasper, and we spent the day skiing in Jasper, and then decided to hitchhike on from Jasper to Vancouver through the middle of the night, through the Rockies again. A really, an experience that actually wound up being terrifying. Um, we, got, we got picked up by one guy who, at about one in the morning who said, uh, he said, you boys are crazy to hitchhike. He said, I drive through here drunk. And if I hit you, I'd keep on driving straight to hell. Hmm. And um, so, the, you know, these are the t- these are the types of things that happen when you take on these journeys. The next morning, we got picked up by a guy, and uh, and this was just outside of Chilliwack. It was raining, and now we're out of the snow, but it's it's wet, cold rain. Like I said, it's maybe four a.m. This guy veers over to the side, nearly hits us. Um, opens the door, says, get in, boys. And we look, and there's a there's a six-pack of five empties on the floor, and he's drinking the sixth. And we looked at each other, and we were desperate for that ride. We were cold. We were scared. It was getting ugly out there. But thank God we looked at each other, and we looked at him and said, no, it's, it's okay, man. See you later. And he took off. It, it might have saved our lives. But that left us uh, walking in the rain, into Chilliwack as the morning traffic was beginning into Vancouver. And so there's just this constant stream of headlights, but it's pitch black. Nobody can see us. They're just driving on and on and on. And I'm walking backward with, I'm walking backward with my thumb out and, and Phil is walking backward as well, but I'm first. So he's ahead of me, but behind me, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I somehow, I somehow, uh, just walking along, I scuff something up and it's a donut. And I and and I say to Phil, "Hey, buddy, you want a donut?" He looks down, he sees the donut, he turns back to me, he puts his hand on my chest, and says, "Move." <laughs> <laughs> and we just we just go back to hitchhiking, and uh, finally, somehow, on an on ramp in Chilliwack, we got picked up. They took us into Vancouver. Uh, we collapsed on the lawn of some friends of ours. Managed to get a ride with them out to the ferry that goes back to Victoria. And then we got our ultimate reward, which is we're, we're on the ferry and it's a beautiful sunny day. And we've hitchhiked through the Rockies twice in February. And uh, we were, we had the, the gift of seeing a pod of orcas breaching off the, uh, off the bow of the ferry and uh, 
put a fine point on that journey. There's lots more details to it, but that's how it all leads to Chilliwack. Hmm. So how many times in your life have friends or relatives or loved ones told you that you were crazy? (laughs) You know, that used to be uh, a running theme for sure. Um, I never felt it. It's, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't feel like the things that I was taking on were crazy because they seemed doable to me. They seemed like, oh yeah, oh, you just hitchhike to BC, <laughs> whatever. Um, but yeah, people used to say that a lot. And I think I took a certain amount of pride in it. Um, but what it was, was boundary finding. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I, and I think as I look back on those journeys, um, I realize how important they were in helping establish boundaries that were different than than what might be the ordinary way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I've got a similar sort of vibe. I mean, I didn't, you know, hitchhike across the Rockies in Canada in February, but I it took me until about my mid-30s before my family started going, oh, he's got a track record of pulling off crazy, so let's just support it. <laughs> Right, exactly. Well, and that is, that's it. I mean, you have to prove it to yourself first, right, before you start proving it to other people. Yeah. Um, okay, I, we, I, we often ask if there are any TV theme songs that you have committed to memory. I'm going to rephrase it for you. Do you have any TV theme songs that you wrote for any TV shows that you can sing for us? <laughs> I, that's, that's good. Uh, I like how much research you do. I did write the theme song for a... Um, for a, a it was a documentary, basically, uh, that ran on Discovery Channel Canada. It ran initially on a little digital network called CTV Travel, but it was filmed by a Discovery Channel crew, and I was actually part of the crew. I was the web guy on that team. This was back in maybe 2004, 2005, and we went from Toronto to... I went from Toronto to Vancouver to Toronto to Halifax to Toronto on the train. I was on the train for 12 days. Um, and the, the, the documentary followed our host, Valerie Pringle, from Vancouver to Halifax on the train, which was, I think that was five or six days. And as we got on board, I was just really lucky. They were, basically they were shooting almost in real time because this new digital network needed content and they knew almost nobody was watching. So what they did is they just, almost everything that was shot on board wound up getting aired. And then they cut it down into five one hours, I think, for Discovery Channel, and then into a one hour special that aired on CTV, which is one of our big networks up here. Um, But I did, you know, they, they basically, they started scratching their heads and going like, okay, what stories do we have? And I kind of get introduced as a folk singer who's on the train with his beat up old guitar and sing songs about the places that we're going through. And Valerie, the host, challenged me to write the theme song. And uh, so I did. I wrote it while, while I was aboard. And it's, um, it's a song I don't play very much anymore because it's a big, huge song. And it's also a bit rah-rah. But it was a fun song to write. Uh, it's called Riding on the Railway. Can we hear a little bit of it a cappella? Yeah, sure. Um, Hoo-hoo, the whistle blows, all aboard, it's time to go. Roll, roll, the wheels go round, riding on the railway. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> oh, we You're have, welcome. We have so much fun doing this. I, I love it when people play along. Um, okay, we are pivoting on to your third song now. So this is Unbreakable Chain, then? 
Yeah, this is Unbreakable Chain by, by Danielle Lenoir off the album uh, For the Beauty of Winona. And this album was, was one of those ones where you just remember the moment when you very first heard it. And, um, and for me, so that was I, was, I was working on a tree planting crew. I spent, I spent six summers as a tree planter, mostly in the bush country of northern Ontario, um, working in, uh, in clear cuts where the, the boreal forest was being destroyed around us. And um, I was in one of those clear cuts north of a ghost town called Fraserdale, which is, um, which is in, uh, up in the... Um, Fraserdale is, a, is this little ghost town uh, along the railway... I don't even know how to put it on it, but if you guys look at a map of Ontario, there's a there's a small dangling part where everybody, you know, where the majority of the population lives, and then there's a huge bulbous part that goes all the way up to uh, the shores of James Bay and Hudson Bay, where there are very few people, and in that area is where I was working, and um, it was quite far out there. You, you, you had to had to travel a couple of hours from the, from the nearest uh, town of any size to get up into these cuts. We were living in a bush camp, and the, the weather there was really peculiar. These, these clear cuts were not too far south of James Bay, and so this kind of Arctic weather would, would come in and high winds, and um, it, it was getting toward the height of summer, so a lot of a lot of little berries and beautiful things were growing in what had been the forest. I remember cloudberries and honeysuckle berries and things like that that, that were um, were. I just remember that, that that day and the light of that day and the wind, and um, and it was tough. We were getting a poor price, and there was a lot of dissension in the camp, and there was a lot of stuff that didn't really feel great. And I remember coming out to the bush road that we, we had to trudge back along to get to the van, and, which would take us back to the camp, which was a good hour and a half down, down more bush roads. And our supervisor, we could hear in the distance a quad, okay, a four-wheeler, which, which we would use to, the, the, um, the tree deliverers would use to boot along those, uh, those roads into the clear cuts. They were basically tracks, and so along comes the quad, and Steve, our supervisor, is standing up on the quad, naked. He's <laughs> he's wearing nothing. He's wearing nothing but his uh, his chainsaw boots, which we all wore because you bark your shins so much when you're when you're hauling over <laughs> old stumps and logs and stuff that are lying around. And so here here comes our supervisor, long hair blowing in the breeze, um, butt naked on a quad, just booting by everybody's little area that they're planting trying to cheer them up he's mud spattered he's got this big grin on his face and I thought man that's original uh and and effective and it it really worked it put a smile on a lot of people's faces we trudge back to the van I get there and some guys who have have bagged out before me that is they've finished up their planting their trees uh there's one young guy and he's he's sitting in the passenger seat and uh and Steve the supervisor is a fellow musician and I'm one of the veterans at this point because I'm all of like 26 years old or something. And, uh, and he and I go back a few contracts. And he says to this kid that's sitting in that seat, he says, uh, he says, you got to move. Davo's going to sit there. 
And the kid's like, why? And Steve says, because I got a job for him to do and I got some music that I want him to listen to. So the kid goes, grudgingly, goes and sits in the back. I get into the, I get into the passenger seat. Steve hands me a bag of weed and some zigzags and says, you got to listen to this. So my job is clear, right? Um, by the way, I'm speaking to you from a place where, uh, where recreational marijuana is legal. And uh, though it wasn't then, I will admit. And, um, and he pops into the tape player of the van, this record, for the beauty of Winona with that remarkable cover uh, with, with this like startling image of a, of a woman holding a knife. And, um, and he pops it in and, you know, I finish my job and we get into the mood and we're driving out over this devastated landscape of these clear cuts, high winds, this crazy... It's an apocalyptic landscape in a way because it's, it's beautiful and devastated all at the same time. And we're in this particular mood and it's this particular moment in time and that perfect, beautiful rich musical masterpiece starts to play and um, we listened to it all the way I, I was shocked by it like shocked silent by how it sounded then and even listening back to it now uh, it, it really it still gives me those feelings it's, it's a remarkable work of art and it was a remarkable moment to receive it in alright let's listen to it together yeah you have broken unbreakable chain what's that make you feel listening to that now thinking back on then you know the really the really weird thing for me about listening to that song is that it's taken on a whole new meaning since then i mean i do my my mind and heart goes back to that moment when i first heard it but it took me a lot of years before i realized that the the text was something that really had a resonance for my own life. I think that's, it took me a long time to figure it out, but I think that song is being written about a mother who has given up a child for adoption. Hmm. And, um, and that happened to me. And over the years, um, it began to occur to me that that, that that was really, it's kind of an opaque text, but it could certainly be looked at in that light. And as I, went into my, myself into the journey of um, of finding and ultimately meeting my own birth mother, I think of that song as a bit of a soundtrack for that in a way, which is, you know, it's weird because it's, it's wildly uh, out of sync with, with this other memory I have of first hearing that album. But, but there it is. It has this, this other layer of meaning too. Hmm. Isn't that amazing how music works? We've had so much, you know, fun and and just wonder uh, exploring that through this show because it's just crazy how it works. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. Hmm. Um, okay. Excuse me. I just choked. Um, okay. So we are uh, we are heading toward a dismount here, and I want to ask you a speed round of some questions. Just uh, uh, okay. Like like Rorschach. Okay. Okay. I'll do my best. You can you can hear. I I'm not. I'm not speedy, so I'll do my best to keep up. Oh, no, that's okay. Do your best. We, there, there's no judgment here. Okay, peak live musical experience. Oh, man. I don't know if anything's <laughs> ever... I mean, there's so many great ones, but, but 
I took my dad to, to hear Paul Simon. A friend and I both took our dads to hear Paul Simon last spring. And I mean, we're big fans too. Um, and um, I had heard him about 10 years ago and thought it was the best concert I'd ever heard. And this was even better. And the fact that, that my dad, who had just turned 80, was was enjoying it as much as he was. And I was enjoying it. And my friend and her dad, that was that was really magic. And I don't know about you guys, but I have a really difficult time getting good gifts for my dad. Yeah. And yeah. now that I am a dad, <laughs> I feel like, you know, I, I, I don't need gifts and I get that he probably didn't need gifts either, but that was one time when I got a really good gift for my dad. And it was also just an utterly amazing musical experience. Uh, what's the furthest you've traveled or maybe in your case, hitchhiked to specifically to see music? Wow. Gee, that's a really good question. Um, I think that I think that when I was tree planting, a bunch of us drove from northern Ontario down to Guelph, which is probably about maybe 900 kilometers, you know, 500 miles, let's say, to uh, to go to the to go to the Guelph Folk Festival. Okay, that'll work. Hillside, yeah. Hillside uh, Folk Festival. When was the last time you bought music that had a physical form, like a CD or a tape or something, or an album? Yeah, I I still buy CDs uh, relatively frequently. Um, I bought one just recently, and now I can't remember I can't remember what it was, <laughs> but I do still buy them. Uh, it was probably it was probably at a show of one of my friends, fellow musicians, because we do support one another in that way, and uh, and I've just got this massive stack on top of my piano. Um, waiting to be uh to be listened to i know what it was i know what it was i traded cds with my friend carrie o from the good lovelies she just put out a solo record and it's a really good record and uh, i traded her my new cd that was at a yard sale at her place about two weeks ago beautiful uh uh, uh best album of all time if you had to pick one i think i would boy that's too hard i mean you just you how, can't favor how about, uh, one al- album over. How about it. album that you've spent the most time listening to just in your life uh, as it turns out? The album that I've spent the most time listening to, it's it's probably Chicken Skin Music by Ry Cooter. But Graceland would be way up there. Um, and that, that was such a transformative, powerful record. Um, that... that and, and probably it, it, by it's a certainty that Graceland has a more impactful record globally uh, than that Ry Cooter one. I've also spent an enormous amount of time with a Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee record called Sonny and Terry. Hmm. Uh, we generally ask people what their 14-year-old self would think of who they are today. I'm going to rephrase it for you to that 20-year range when you were doing the India stuff. What would that person think of who you are today? I honestly think I have become the kind of guy that my 20-year-old self was trying to get next to. You know, I spent a lot of time, I was interested in guys who were that generation older than me, and I wanted their guidance. I wanted to know about the music that they had listened to. That's who my Uncle Rick was for me and other people like that. And I, I, and I think I've I've become... I don't care if my 20-year-old self would approve of me because my 20-year-old self was kind of a nut, but 
but I, I think my 20-year-old self would look up to me now. When was the last time you hitchhiked? I think the last time I hitchhiked was about uh, 20 years ago. Um, I ran out of gas in a buddy's car and had to hitchhike um, like f- maybe a few miles a- along, a, along a highway just to get to the gas station and back. Gotcha. Do you, do you miss that, that adventure of hitchhiking at all? Seems like it was probably fairly foundational to who you are. It's a big part of who I was, for, or who I am, I guess. I mean, I, you know, I don't really miss it because I have the stories. Like, oftentimes uh, I host festivals and concerts and events and that sort of thing. And I've taken to, uh, if I have to fill in time, I just tell hitchhiking stories. And so I feel like they're still <laughs> with me. And there's there's parts of it that I don't miss at all. I don't miss the danger. I don't miss the uh, the hunger. Uh, I don't miss that, that sort of sense of loss and desolation when the cars are just going by you and the weather's bad and you can't get anywhere but yeah. it was it was a great thing to have done yeah and i don't even know if it flies really anymore i don't I, you don't see it very often at least not down here um are there any songs you'll always turn off if they come up on the radio or you're in their presence and you have some control over them i i have to admit that i i once was driving home from uh, miami florida to toronto uh, and it, I did a drive of about 36 hours with just a couple of rest stops. And it happened to be the week that Achy Breaky Heart hit really big. <laughs> and it was on every single radio station all the way up the line. And so uh, somehow it seemed to be on about every 10 minutes. And I don't need to hear that song again. Okay. Um, all right. Now, uh, um, as you know, uh, we're going to challenge you to pick three people. Just how, that's how you wound up here, thanks to Shauna Caspi. So who are yes. the three people that you would like to challenge so we can start paying this forward and do our best to spread out across Canada, or unless you pick some Americans too? Yeah, no, I've given it some real thought. And be, first of all, I want to say that because I picked three songs that happen to be by male singers. I'm, I'm picking three females to tag in this post. Cheers to that. Uh, th- yeah, three women who are all important to me in my life. The first is my wife, who is a brilliant writer and blogger and Montessori educator and activist and advocate by the name of Megan Sheffield and a great conversationalist with amazing taste in music who's always turning me on to new things. Uh, I think you should talk to another good friend of mine by the name of Rachel Bereka, who is also an educator, but at the at the university level, works in student empowerment, student engagement, has been the president of the Folk Music Ontario organization, and uh, is herself, uh, has been a radio programmer and producer, and uh, is a very, very thoughtful and um, extremely acute listener of music. And uh, third, I think you should speak to Shoshana Kish, who's a fellow musician, uh, and she is the front woman of a band called Digging Roots, and they are, uh, Shoshana and her partner Raven are Anishinaabe, uh, First Nations from uh, Ontario and Quebec, and they are making some of the most powerful music on the scene in Canada right now. Also an incredibly uh, thoughtful and mindful person who will say interesting things and have interesting stories. Cool. Well, then when this comes out, um, share this with them and then put, um, put me in touch with them. And then we will do our best to put them, you know, either in that studio where you are today or wherever it works out. I'd love to do that.
Okay, cool. Well, um, uh, any final thoughts before we have you play us out with a parting tune of your uh, own? Well, I would just like to thank you folks for your attention and for the attention that you place on songs and stories because I think that's what we live by and that's that's kind of what forms the world that we live in. And uh, I'm grateful to have someone listen to my thoughts on songs and, and, um, and I, I just really enjoy what you're doing. Well, we feel absolutely blessed to be doing it, so thank you for doing it uh, with us. Um, what are we going to hear and uh, take your time getting set up? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm just banging around here getting my guitar into shape. I'm going to take a moment to tune, and um, and then I'm going to play you a song called uh, Under Forever Skies, which was written, inspired by a, a place that I visited in the, in the, uh, in the high Arctic that has, um, that has a, a lot of amazing elements from uh, geology to glaciology to prehistoric um, dwellings uh, to remnants of Hudson Bay Company posts and um, and it, and it's just a, a place where you know sort of almost the the entirety of Earth's history is in some ways revealed and and you get a chance to visit there and you really recognize um, you know the the eternal nature of uh, of what goes on on this planet and also the very brief moment that we occupy. Cool. Well, you get tuned up. What's the, what are the call letters of the station you're at there today? I remember this, the 89.7, but I can't remember the call letters. Yeah, this is 89.7, Northumberland 89.7. They never, they never say the call oh, numbers okay. as often, the call letters. Well, then I got all the parts I needed. Okay. CFWN, that's what, what it is, CFWN. What is it again? CFWN. They do say the call letters. I just am not used to hearing them as often as 89.7. CFWN. Okay, you tune up. I'm going to do a little sign-off here, and then I'll, I'll sit back and listen. Um, uh, this is David Newland from uh, CFWN 89.7 uh, Northumbria, I think he said. Um, anyway, I'm Mike Canary. Keep listening. Sun and moon dance night and day Ancient play of light and shadow Tiny flowers bob and sway Summer's moment in the meadow Open and close your eyes Under forever sky Foundations on the land Whalebone forms a heavy rafter Footsteps muffled in the sand Restless spirits wander after Open and close your eyes Under forever sky.
seek your history here Ghosts of men who came to plunder They were lost in fear Best to lose yourself in wonder Under forever sky engine roars and we are specks upon the landing a distant falcon swoops and soars far beyond our understanding see how that falcon flies into that gray horizon Open and close your eyes Under forever Next time on Three Song Stories. Are you are you a karaoke? Oh heck no. Why? I love to watch karaoke. Well, I don't love to watch it, but over the years <laughs> I've watched a lot of karaoke. <laughs> I did sing karaoke one time and it was to get my friend to let me leave. I was like, if I sing, can we please go? What'd you sing? Um, I'm just a girl with my purse and my jacket on, ready to go. Right, yeah. I'm just a girl who's going to leave I here need soon. To leave. <laughs> That's how desperate I was. 